Ephesians, the riches of grace. Teaching number 10 tonight is Paul's prayer for the saints. We're going to look at the reasons for Paul's prayer for the saints and then the requests of Paul's prayer for the saints. So number one, let's look at the reasons that Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus. As number one, Paul heard about their response to grace, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 15, for this reason, and now he's going to state the reason, and he's going back to the verse before, and he's actually summarizing in this little statement as well. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering you in my prayers. When he heard about their faith in Christ, it prompted him to pray for them, their faith in the Lord Jesus. And he's referring back to Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. It says, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, having heard and believed the word of truth, and he defines what the word of truth is here, the gospel of your salvation. When the Ephesians heard the gospel of their salvation, the question then is, what's the gospel that they heard that resulted in them believing. The gospel is the same gospel that Jesus gave Paul. This gospel you and I, we've been studying in this whole series. It's the gospel of grace. And Paul talks about it again in Acts 20, 24, when he says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I only may complete the task and finish the race the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying or telling other people about the gospel of God's grace. So it was that gospel, the good news of grace, that Paul took into the darkness of Ephesus. Remember, in Acts 26, Jesus sent Paul into the Gentile cities to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, where they would find forgiveness and sanctification through faith in Christ. So Paul is carrying light. He's carrying truth. He's carrying the truth about who God is, the truth about God's love for people, the truth about God wants to be in relationship with people, uh, the truth about what Christ did on the cross, how God in Christ reconciling, reconciled the world to himself in mm-hmm. Christ. So Paul took this truth into the city of Ephesus. Now, in the city of Ephesus was many, many false gods. The temple of Diana was there, this huge, huge Artemis, this huge temple was there a lot of the idols were being made, these little idols that represented Artemis and Diana, and it was a huge market. I mean, they sold a lot of these little idols. And so the people were in just just dark darkness because they're searching for who God is. They're, They're worshiping these false idols. They're trying to find hope in life, and they're turning toward these false gods for some kind of purpose, for some kind of meaning. And all of a sudden, Paul shows up and other people show up in Ephesus, and they start talking about a God that became man and a God that is not requiring them to do something to be saved. It's a God that steps into humanity and did everything to save them. So it's a message they had never heard before. It was a message where you don't have to prove your love for this God. You don't have to prove your worth to this God. You don't have to earn this God's acceptance. You don't have to work for this God's approval. That this God loves you so much that he stepped out of heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and 
died on the cross for all of our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and one day is coming back. That's the message that Paul began to share with this group in Ephesus, these people. And he says, when they heard the word of truth, finally, truth came to them about who God really is and his love and his goodness and his kindness and his grace and the cross. Truth finally came to them to set them free from the lies they had been believing. The gospel, the good news of your salvation, being saved from the judgment to come, the condemnation to come, the wrath to come, and more than being saved from these things to come, but entering into a love relationship with God knowing this God, which was a very foreign concept to any of the the Gentile people, that you could actually know a God, that this God would actually know you, and this God wants to be in a relationship with you. That was a a foreign message to them. But when they heard it, they believed the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, says you were sealed. So there's eternal security right there. We can't undo what Christ has done for us and the fact that Christ now lives in us. Our salvation is secure. Our forgiveness is secure. Our righteous standing before God is secure. Our holy standing before God is secure. Our adoptions as sons is secure. We are secure in Christ. It says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So God promised in the Jewish scriptures that the Holy Spirit would come and live in the hearts of people. And so when the Holy Spirit takes residence in the heart of a person, the Holy Spirit seals our salvation, and the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of our bodies and we're with Christ. So The pledge of our inheritance means the Holy Spirit guarantees what God has freely given us in Christ, this inheritance. Remember, we've talked about this word inheritance. An inheritance is something someone gets that they did nothing to work for. They did nothing to earn. It simply comes to them because somebody else worked for it. Somebody else earned it. And so you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the pledge or the guarantee of our inheritance. So The Holy Spirit in us not only secures our salvation, secures our righteousness, secures our forgiveness, he also guarantees it. It's like, I'm guaranteeing that you're secure. So what Paul's doing here is he's he's doubling down on the finality of the work of Christ for us, the eternality of the work of Christ for us, and it can never be taken away. And because the Spirit indwells us, we can never undo what Christ has done. He's talking about the church in Ephesus. And in him, having heard and believed the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption, or when we're finally set free from these bodies, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That's good news there. We are God's valued possession. We are God's God loves us. He values us. Think about things that you possess that you value. You take care of those things. You, I think about my uncle, who I think I've used an illustration before. He, he valued his, his old cars that he had. He loved his old cars, and he fixed them up, and he loved the possession of his vehicle. And I think about things maybe I have that I possess, you have that you possess, that are valuable to you. You and I are valuable to God. 
we matter to God. He calls us his own to the praise of his glory, which simply means all that God has done for us in Christ reveals God's glory to us, reveals God's greatness to us, causes us to say, wow, God, you're an amazing, amazing God. So when Paul heard of the faith of those in Ephesus in Christ Jesus, it prompted him to pray for them, to remember them in his prayers. In a moment, we're going to see the content of his prayers. So Paul heard about their relationships of grace. So he heard about their response of faith to grace. He heard about their relationships of grace, which is love for each other. Ephesians 1.15, Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So we see when they heard about this grace, when they heard about this incredible loving God, they never heard of a God who loved them unconditionally, a God who would move to them unconditionally, a God who would come for them and rescue them and die for their sins and give them hope and give them meaning and give them purpose. This incredible love that was demonstrated in the person of Christ, revealing just how much God loves people. This message of grace, then, it began to change their hearts. They began to love one another. Notice here, we say it every week, but it's your love for all the saints. Again, Paul never uses the phrase sinner saved by grace. He's identifying these Ephesians based upon what Christ did for them at the cross. A saint is somebody who's been made holy and righteous and forgiven. They're God's sons and daughters. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, remembering you in my prayer. So Paul was moved to pray for those in Ephesus when he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and he heard of their love for each other. So he was consistently praying for the saints of the church of Ephesus. Now, what's really interesting is what is the content of his prayers? We know that he prayed for them, but what did Paul pray for the saints in Ephesus? So let's take a look at the request of Paul's prayers for the saints. Number one, as he prayed, they would increasingly grow in their knowledge of the Father. We find this in Ephesians 1, 16 through 17. Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, ever since I heard about your love for the saints, remembering you in my prayers, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. So the first part of his prayer for the church in Ephesus and for the believers was a continual spring of prayers that sprung up from his heart because of their salvation and of their love for one another. I mean, can you imagine Paul as a missionary going into these idol-ridden Greek cities and these idols are all over the place? They, they have these market booths set up and these men are selling idols and these false gods are all over the place. And Paul's heart would have to break for these people who are worshiping these false gods. And so Jesus sent Paul into these cities to share the good news of the gospel and for him to get a report back that there was groups of people who were responding to the gospel. That really had to just cause Paul to just be overjoyed. Like, you know, my missionary efforts are not of no value. He had been into this city before, and he's hearing of more and more people coming to faith in Christ. So it says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, full of gratitude for the salvation of those who responded to the gospel of grace, remembering you in my prayers. So now, now we're getting to the content of the prayer. 
I'm praying for you in order that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, again, there's the adjective that Paul uses when he thinks about grace, the glorious Father. So I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom. I think that's education there. I think that's the ability to learn the gospel of grace, that he would enable the people to intellectually, in their brain, understand on a much deeper level the gospel. When we read the book of Romans, we see the the brain of God in the book of Romans. We see the brain of God in, in Ephesians, the riches of grace. Paul was highly educated about the gospel, educated by Jesus, given the ability to learn the gospel and to communicate the gospel and to speak about the gospel and to write about the gospel. Now he's praying that the people of the church in Ephesus would be able to be educated on a much deeper level about the gospel than what they were currently educated about. So that's part of this prayer. The second part is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of him. So to me, this this goes beyond human intellect. This goes beyond our ability to comprehend, which, you know, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, that they would come to understand the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ. He said, but that goes beyond really your ability to understand that would surpass your ability to understand and go deep into your soul and a revelation of just how much Jesus loves you. So on one hand, Paul's, I think, praying, God, I pray for the, the church in Ephesus. I pray for the saints in Ephesus that you would give them the ability to learn in their brain about the gospel of grace, that you would help them get it and understand it. At the same time, I pray you would go beyond their brain and deep into their hearts and give them a comprehension of it that their brain can never understand to begin with. So it's, it's a dualistic prayer. Give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of him. So this word knowledge is the word epinosis in the Greek language. It's where we get the term, sometimes people talk about Gnosticism, Gnostics who always were seeking more knowledge, more and more knowledge that the knowledge they had wasn't ever enough. And they were going into the churches that Paul planted and they were saying, hey, there's more to know about God than just Jesus. And so the word knowledge is epinosis. Paul was praying for them was an increasing knowledge, an increasing growing in their education of the gospel and in the revelation of the gospel, their knowledge of him. When we read Ephesians, we get insight into the character of God and the work of God. You know, Paul talks about in love we were chosen or in love we were predestined. He talks about the mercy of God. He talks about the kindness of God. He talks about the forgiveness of God. So they would come to understand who God really is, which was in total contrast to any of the gods that they had ever tried to pursue. Because this is God pursuing them in love. This is God pursuing them in mercy. This is God pursuing them in kindness and goodness. This is a God they had never, ever been communicated to about that was so much different than the false gods that they themselves were trying to pursue. So Paul's praying that they would first have the, the education of the gospel of grace and the knowledge of all that God had done for them in Christ and who he was. And then this internal 
revelation, which leads us to number two. So the second request of Paul is that they would internally awaken to the resources of the Father. Ephesians 1, 18 through 19 says, Paul says, I ask that the eyes of your heart, there's the internal awakening. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul says, I pray for this revelation of grace in your heart, that, that you would awaken internally to the grace of God, to the goodness of God, to the forgiveness of God, to the kindness of God, to the gospel, he said, an internal awakening to the gospel of grace. I ask that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. So he, he's asking for three things here. After the eyes of their heart are awakened to the good news of grace, there's three awakenings that he prays for here. And the first one, he says, so that you may know the hope of his calling. That's the first awakening to grace that they would come to understand. The riches of his glorious inheritance, that's the second awakening. And the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe, that's the third awakening. So those are the three specific awakenings to the gospel that Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to come to understand. So let's take a look at each of these resources that Paul is praying that, that Father, I pray they can experience this powerful resource of hope that you've called them to, the riches of grace that you've provided for them, and the surpassing power that's available for them who believe. So resource number one that Paul is praying that their eyes would be open to internally is the hope of his calling. So the definition of hope is hope is something to live for now and something to look forward to later. So it's a hope that we wake up with every day. And it's a hope that we are absolutely guaranteed that's going to come to us one day. It's this confident hope that Christ is going to return. It's this hope of life on the new earth, life in heaven. Then when Christ returns, we return with him. This eternal inheritance that is ours awaiting us, hope. Now, he describes their lives apart from God before they came to understand this hope. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, it says, therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles, those in Ephesus, before the good news of the gospel came, that you were without hope and without God in the world. I, I can't think of a more worse condition to be in. No hope and no God. That's got to be the ultimate depression, the ultimate discouragement. Many, many people today live with no hope because they don't have God. They ignore that in the sense of everybody's aware that they're going to die. That's the ultimate hopelessness. And to ponder death and to think about death apart from knowing God. I don't even like thinking about it. And I have hope. You know, it's not something that I like to really dwell on. And I have Christ. I can't imagine somebody who has no hope, what they do when they contemplate death. I think what they do, I think most people live their lives ignoring the fact that they're going to die. Because how do you live today if I'm contemplating that tomorrow I'm going to die? However, there are some people whose entire lives are based upon the philosophy, tomorrow I die, so I might as well get as much out of as life I can while I'm, while I'm alive. So at one time, these people had no purpose. They're serving these false gods. They had no hope, no earthly hope, no eternal hope in the world. 
but now you have hope. Now you have God and the source of their hope and their God is now in Christ Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away from hope and from God, you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. I mean, it's such good news for the Ephesians people. You've been brought near. You've been brought in a, to a close relationship with God where all these false gods you've been trying to pursue, you're coming to understand that there's this God who loves you and that's actually pursuing you. And he wants a relationship with you. And he's brought you near to him so that the good news of the gospel of grace is not me trying to get close to God. I mean, that's what they did in these false religions. The good news of the gospel of grace is God coming close to us and us understanding that and us having faith that through the blood of Christ, God has come near to me and he's brought me near to himself. So it's not up to me to get close to God. It's not up to me to stay close to God. The blood of Christ brings us into an intimate relationship with God and that the pressure's off. The pressure's off for me to get close to God. The pressure's off for me to stay close to God because the blood of Christ did it all. You and I are close to God because of Christ. So they had come to understand this is the hope that they had been called to. They had been called to the hope that was secure for them in the blood of Christ. The hope of knowing God through Christ. He talks about in Ephesians 1.12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. He talks about in Ephesians 4, 4, you were called to one hope. There he's talking about Jew and Gentile learning to be a family of grace and that they would understand that Jew and Gentile, they're not separate anymore. They're not, there's not a one way for Jew and another way for Gentiles, that God's doing something totally new in the person of Christ. Judaism has now faded away. Christ has fulfilled what Judaism promised. He says, and you, Jew and Gentile, are now called to one hope. Sharing this hope together, this hope of, of knowing God through Christ. Uh, you were called to one hope. I like what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 4. talks about a living hope. You know, hope is something not only we look forward to, but it's something we live with. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. There's an excitement to that statement. It says, in God's great mercy... He has given us a new birth, and this new birth is into a living hope. So if the new birth is a birth into living hope, the old birth is a birth into no hope. So think about the old birth for a minute. Life apart from God, and the source of the living hope, he says, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because he defeated the great enemy of the human race. The great enemy of the human race is death. The resurrection of Christ solves humanity's two greatest problems. The two greatest problems of humanity that's solved by the resurrection is one, the emptiness of life, no hope, and the end of life, the absolute hopelessness. So the resurrection of Christ solves the emptiness of life because it brings us into relationship with God. And the resurrection of Christ solves the end of life, which is death, because Jesus said, he who believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. My resurrection is your resurrection. So now we have a living hope in the resurrection of Christ. So that the old birth was we're born into this world. We learn to walk. Well, we learn to crawl. We learn to walk. Eventually go to preschool, go to elementary school, go to middle school, go to high school, graduate from high school. Some people, when they graduate from high school, 
immediately start to work. Some people go to college and then start to work, start to work, start making money, start saving money, get married, possibly have children, continue to work, continue to save, retire, have grandchildren, and die. I mean, that's a hopeless existence. Apart from Christ, that, that's just a hopeless, hopeless existence. But in Christ, this hopeless existence becomes an existence of hope that now you and I wake up every day that everything we do matters. My work now matters. My relationships matter. Everything we do matters now. It, it, we have hope. And wherever we are and whatever we do, we live with this hope now, this The end of life has been solved. The emptiness of life has been solved. And you and I now have a hope. And it says here, this living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he describes this living hope, not only we live with every day, but we look forward to one day, is into an inheritance that can never perish, means go away. Spoil means go bad. And fade means grow old. Think about everything we have in in this life. Everything perishes, spoils, or fades. You go buy a new pair of shoes. They're going to grow old, go bad, or go away. We get a new pair of glasses. They're going to grow old, go bad, or go away. We get a new car. They're going to grow old. It's going to grow old, go bad, or go away. There's nothing that's eternal. Everything goes old, goes bad, or goes away. But we have a hope that will never, ever grow old. It won't even start the aging process. It won't start the fading process, the spoiling process. It will never, ever begin to go bad, go away, or grow old. When I was 24, 25, I was able, when I graduated from college, I bought a Acura Integra little sports coupe. And y'all know, you know, you get in a new car and the new car smell just is like one of the best smells there is but it eventually goes away and it goes bad and things spoil because they're left under the seat and you know the beauty of what the inheritance that you and I have to come it's the new car smell for eternity it's the aroma of newness every single day and that is something that we can live with that's hope that you and I have and that's what the church in Ephesus discovered that's what the people of Ephesus discovered. And that's why Paul's heart was so full of joy for them. And he, God, thank you so much for these people in Ephesus have come to understand the living hope of Christ. They have purpose now. They have meaning now. And they can walk by these market booths where they're selling these false idols where their hope once was. And they can walk right by them and say, hey, I've got another hope. And they can actually share hope with these people. So Paul was really excited about that. Resource number two, not only are we called to a living hope that Paul wanted them to come, to come to understand, and he prayed that they would come to experience, but the second resource is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So what are these riches? These riches are the spiritual treasures of the gospel of grace. So Paul uses the riches of grace several times in Ephesians. It says to the praise in Ephesians 1, 6 through 8. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the beloved one, the riches of his grace that he's lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So Paul's prayer was that the church in Ephesus would come to a deeper 
education of the riches of grace and a deeper revelation of the riches of grace that the eyes of their hearts would awaken more and more to, to the gospel of grace, to the glory of grace, to everything God had freely given them in Christ, that they, they would awaken to, to the riches of grace. I know you guys, and I've heard some of y'all's testimonies. When the Lord gave me the ability in my brain to be able to, to comprehend this gospel, but then he bypassed my brain and gave me an internal awakening to the gospel of grace. My life hasn't ever been the same. In 1990, this experience, awakening to the riches of God's grace was a revival in my heart that has continued since 1990. You know, so often churches try to manufacture revivals through an emotional experience, trying to manufacture revival. And the problem with revivals is they don't last. We have to have another one the next year and another one the next year. And what I've discovered about the revival of grace is it lasts. It never ceases to be a revival. When the Holy Spirit gives us this revelation of grace, it continually revives us. It continually produces incredible joy within us spiritually. I think that's why Paul was praying for this church in Ephesus. He's, He's like, I just want this grace to go so deep in their hearts and past their heads that they're living in this constant revival of the riches of God's grace. And that becomes a powerful source within them. So Paul's praying that that they would come to understand the, the riches of God's grace, the glorious inheritance, everything Jesus purchased for them at the cross, which was now freely given to them in Christ and received by faith. So Paul talks about the riches of of Christ in Ephesians 3.8. Though I am less than the least of all the saints. I wonder how many times Paul uses the word saints in in the book of Ephesians. Though I am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. How do we define a preacher? You know, that's that's a phrase that is commonly used. I'm a preacher. Paul talks about to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, think about this for a minute. How many people have heard thousands of sermons by preachers? And how many of those sermons were about the unsearchable riches of Christ? Not very many. That's why so many in the body of Christ are ignorant. Ignorant means I've never been taught this. It doesn't mean the inability to understand. They're ignorant about the unsearchable riches of Christ, the treasures of the gospel of grace. So many believers go their entire Christian experience, having heard thousands of sermons, been in thousands of Sunday school classes, thousands of small group meetings, been to men's conferences and women's conferences, and still have never heard one message on the unsearchable riches of Christ. We need some preachers in the body of Christ. We need some. This is the best news. Notice what Paul's praying for them. He's praying that they come to this understanding, this knowledge, this awakening, this revelation of the gospel of grace deep within their heart, deep within their soul, because that's where transformation takes place. When the gospel of grace touches our heart, shame goes away, guilt goes away, fear goes away. Doubt goes away, self-hatred goes away, self-condemnation goes away, destructive life patterns go away. And Paul wanted them to have this revelation of grace deep within their heart. 
So the third resource he prayed for, the hope of, of their calling, the unsearchable riches of grace. And the third resource he wanted them to come to understand was the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe. So he wanted them to awaken to the power that was at their disposal. So now the question is, what is the power that was at their disposal that Paul wanted them to awaken to? So what is the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe? It's the gospel of grace. That's the power of God. Look at Romans 1.17. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's talking about the gospel of grace that he unfolds in all of Romans. This amazing grace gospel, the good news of grace, in contrast to the law in the book of Romans. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news of God's grace because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what is it? Remember, we looked at the first few verses of Ephesians. They heard the gospel of their salvation. It's the gospel that we see in Romans. They heard it and they believed it. Paul wanted them to understand the power of the gospel of grace beyond the initial salvation. Typically, what happens within Christianity, the gospel is for the lost. The gospel, we communicate the gospel to the lost, and we should. But what Paul is praying here is a deeper revelation of the gospel for the saints. So we don't get people saved by grace and then teach them to live by law. That's a mixed message. People are saved by grace, and now we want them to grow in the grace that saves them. So that's the power that he wants them to come to the realization of. Paul talks about the power of grace or the power of the gospel, or the power of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel of grace not with wisdom and eloquence. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to improve as a speaker. You know, as a pastor, you want, you know, wanting to become a better communicator. I don't think there's a thing in the world wrong with that. But the power of a preacher's message is never in his beautiful delivery of the message. It has always got to be the content of the cross. So somebody can be a very good speaker a very good communicator, but that message can be as empty as a glass with no water in it, as a bucket with no water in it. And you can, we can take that bucket and we can paint it up and make it look really nice and a great presentation. But if somebody's thirsty, they don't care what the bucket looks like. They just need the water that's in the bucket. The power to change a person's life is not in the preacher's polished presentation. The power of a preacher is not in his personality. It's not in his charismatic appeal. It's the gospel. That's the power. You know, sometimes people will say, boy, he sure was preaching tonight. Well, when I hear that, I'm thinking, I think they probably just heard a lot of legalism. They heard a lot of emotion. They heard a lot of maybe some craziness. But I really don't know if they heard the gospel. Because I'd rather have somebody just very quietly, kind of boring. But man, if they talk about Jesus and what he did on the cross, that's the power. That's the power right there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved is the power of God. The saved need to hear the gospel. The gospel is not just for the lost. The gospel is also for the saved. Because when Satan comes against us, our power to fight against Satan is in the gospel. The spiritual armor is the gospel of grace. That's the armor. And so we've got to be more educated as believers in Christ. We've, we've got to come to a fuller understanding of the cross, of what happened at the cross, the message of the cross. And what's the message of the cross? God's not counting your sins against you. You're forgiven. You're holy. You're blameless. You're righteous. Christ lives in you now. You're led by the Spirit. There's so much to this message that believers, we, we want believers to understand. Paul talks about the power of grace with his thorn in the flesh. I was given a thorn in my flesh. I don't know how people have missed what the thorn is. You know how people will, they'll kind of debate and they'll, I wonder what Paul's thorn was. And, and, and one day I'm reading this and Paul tells us exactly what the thorn is. I was given a thorn in my flesh, comma, a messenger of Satan. There's the thorn. It wasn't his eyesight, wasn't his, any kind of physical ailment. It was a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. That's the thorn. So a messenger brings a message. So then the question is, what is the message that this messenger of Satan brought Paul that tormented Paul? My thoughts are it's, it's a message of guilt. It's a message of accusation. It's a message of, hey, Paul, how can you be a preacher of the gospel? Look at how many people you hurt. Look at how many, you know, you, you were there giving approval of Stephen's death. You've ruined families. Stephen's wife doesn't have a husband any, anymore. Their children don't have a dad. And Paul, you're a pretty poor person to be preaching to people after your past. Why would messenger of Satan be tormenting Paul with the message of his past? If he could cause Paul to focus on his guilt, then Paul would cease preaching the gospel of grace. Because Satan knew that Paul's message was extremely powerful and Satan didn't want people to hear the message of grace. Remember, remember that Jesus sent Paul to turn people from the power of Satan to the power of God through the proclamation of the gospel of grace. Satan's strategy then was to, all right, this guy has a message that's going to change people's lives. The Pharisees were, were sons of Satan. They were offsprings of Satan. They didn't have the gospel of grace. Paul had the gospel of grace. The Judaizers didn't have the gospel of grace. Paul had the gospel of grace. I think this guilt was eating Paul up internally, this constant reminder of his past. He says, three times I pleaded. I, the pain of my past was tormenting me so badly that I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Take away this guilt. Take away this guilt. Take away these memories that haunt me from what I did. But Jesus said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Think about how many times the word grace is used after the cross of Christ in Scripture. It's around 150 times, about seven times before the cross, 150 times after the cross, the word charis. Of those 150 times, about 140 are used by Paul, which tells us that grace had a powerful effect on Paul's life, but he was still haunted by his past. And this messenger of Satan was constantly trying to remind him of his guilt and his shame to render him powerless. And Jesus says to Paul, Paul, I know you're out telling people 
all over the Roman Empire, that my grace is sufficient for them. And Paul, that's exactly what I told you to go tell them, that my grace is sufficient for them. But Paul, don't forget about this truth. My grace is sufficient for you too. And it's easy, isn't it, y'all, sometimes to forget that God's grace is, is my grace too. It's like sometimes I can, I can get caught up in sharing the gospel of grace with people, but then beat myself up for my own weaknesses rather than hearing Jesus tell me, hey, Brad, my grace is for you too. And, and I think that's a good thing for us to remember. In our weaknesses, God's grace is for us, which then becomes our power in our weaknesses. So I think he's just encouraging Paul. Don't forget, Paul, this grace you're telling everybody about, it, it's for you too. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. So the gospel is not only for the unbeliever, the gospel is also for the believer. It's a power that is a resource for us every day when we live in the truth of the gospel. Um, we see the power of the gospel in uh, the church in Thessalonica when Paul went into that church. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that God has chosen you, the Gentiles, because our gospel came to you, the Gentiles in Thessalonica, not simply with words, but also with power. So Paul began to share the gospel of grace, the words of grace, to these Thessalonians. And the power of the gospel began to, the Holy Spirit took the words of the gospel and did something powerful in the heart of the Thessalonians. Our gospel came to you, the gospel of grace, came to you in Thessalonica, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction that the Holy Spirit convinced the Thessalonians of the gospel of grace. And remember, we looked a few weeks ago at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the Spirit and the preacher of the gospel of grace and the Holy Spirit are working together, that the Holy Spirit takes the gospel of grace and gives revelation of the gospel of grace in the hearts of those who hear it, and then they believe it. So our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, the power of the gospel, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction of the gospel of grace. You know how we lived among you in Thessalonica for your sake. Since you became imitators of us, Paul said, when they were in Thessalonica and of the Lord. Look what they did when they heard the message of the gospel of grace. For you welcomed the message. You welcomed the message of grace. You welcomed the message of what Christ did for you on the cross. You welcomed the message of complete forgiveness. You welcomed the message of complete righteousness. You welcomed the message of the crucifixion, of the resurrection, and everything God did for you in Christ. You welcomed that. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit produce in the hearts of people who hear the gospel of grace and who welcome it? Joy, which is the second fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. So the Spirit produces joy in the heart of a person who hears the gospel of grace, who welcomes the gospel of grace, and the Holy Spirit then convinces them of the truths of grace and then produces joy in their hearts. And he says, and so you Thessalonians, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only did they become a model of what the gospel of grace can do in the heart of a person, 
But the Lord's message, which is what? Remember the message he gave Paul, the message of the gospel of grace. The Lord's message of grace rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. So people began to see what the gospel of grace did in the hearts of these people in Thessalonica. It says your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols. So these people were worshiping false gods like the unbelievers in Ephesus who responded to the gospel and became a part of the church. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve or to worship or to know the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. There's the living hope right there. To wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus. There's the solving of the emptiness of life and the solving of the end of life for those in Thessalonica who rescues us from the coming wrath or the judgment of God when he cleanses the world of all sin and sinners and he sets up his kingdom on earth. So we see the power of the gospel in the people in Thessalonica. So now wrap up Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 23. It says these are in accordance. So the question is this, what's the these that are in accordance with the working of his mighty strength? The hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the surpassing power of the gospel are in accordance or come from the working of his mighty strength. So hope of his calling comes from the work of God's mighty strength. Riches of the glorious inheritance, the surpassing greatness for those who believe, come from the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. For above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named. You think about that. What kind of power does Jesus have? Every name that is named. I mean, think about some of the names back then, these great rulers, the Caesars, all the different names, Alexander the Great, all the names they could name. None of them was greater than the name of Jesus. You're talking about hope, incredible hope. Power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, all the leaders that people look to in that time, our time as well. Whatever name anybody can name today, it doesn't touch the name of Jesus, but also in the one to come. So the age to come is when Christ returns and he sets up his kingdom on earth. That no name will be greater than the name Jesus when Jesus comes to earth and no name is greater than the name Jesus. And he's in heaven now his name, the name Jesus. And God put everything under his feet. Nothing's more powerful than Jesus, no names greater than Jesus, and made him head over everything for the church. Now, the one who has the greatest name on earth and in heaven is over us, over the church, which we're his body, we're his hands of love, we're his words of grace, we're his kindness in the communities that we live, in the cities that we live, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. So something to keep in mind real quick. Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus is for the deeper education and revelation of God's grace, freely and fully lavished upon us in Christ. So he wanted this deeper education and revelation of grace to come to the saints in Ephesus because Paul knew that grace is the source of God's hope and God's power in their lives and in their church in Ephesus which is the same is for us today. What is my prayer? Well, my prayer is they understand the hope of their calling. 
they come to understand the hope that they've been called to in Christ. And my prayer is for a deeper education and a deeper revelation of the believers in the gospel of grace, that more and more people who are believers come to understand both through education and through internal revelation so that the eyes of their hearts are open. Because you and I have seen the joy that immediately begins in the heart of a believer when they understand grace. They are set free from years of spiritual bondage that they didn't even know they were under until they were set free with the message of grace. You and you and I have seen the power of the gospel of grace in our Bible studies, whether somebody's in their 80s or whether somebody's 28. The power of the gospel doesn't discriminate. It's like, I, I want to produce joy in anybody's and everybody's heart. Nobody's too old to learn about grace. Nobody's too young to learn about grace. And it produces this amazing, amazing joy and transformation. So why would Paul consistently pray for the church in Ephesus to awaken to grace? Because the great enemy of the church is Satan. And there's one power that Satan doesn't want the church to awaken to. The church is a sleeping giant. And when the church awakens to grace, I'm talking about the universal church. When the church awakens to grace, a power and a revival will happen among that church that I don't even know how to describe it. That is unimaginable, unbelievable when this awakening happens within the hearts of believers. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here in Ephesians 20 and 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. So here's the question. What is the power that is at work within us that can do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine? It's the power of the gospel. It's the same power that went into the church of Thessalonica. It's the same power that went into the church of Ephesus. And Paul's praying that they would have a deeper revelation of this gospel so that they will experience an internal awakening to it and the power of it within, within them. So to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that's the power of the gospel that is at work within us, that Paul's praying we would awaken to this gospel within us, to him be glory in the church. So the people of the church awakening to the power of grace that's inside of them. And in Christ Jesus, who is the one through whom grace comes through all generations, Satan knows the power of grace too. That is why Satan works against the education and revelation of grace in the hearts and minds of believers. Satan knows a person and a church that awakens to grace will experience revival. Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. What is the mighty power of God that enables us to be strong in the Lord? It's the power of the gospel of grace. The spiritual armor that Paul goes through is the gospel of grace. Piece by piece by piece by piece. You're putting on the gospel. You're, you're clothing yourself in the gospel every day. That's why believers have to learn more and more. So when Paul says with the first piece of the gospel, put on the belt of truth, has he used the word truth in Ephesians? He's talking about the truth of the gospel that's going to help you, believer, take your stand against Satan when he tells you that you're not righteous and you're not clean and you're not forgiven and God's not going to use you and God's anger with you and mad. He's talking about the truth of Ephesians 1. He's talking about the truth of Ephesians 2. 
the truth of Ephesians 3, the truth of Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 5. So it's the gospel. And so that's the power of God that Satan doesn't want us to come to the revelation of because that power beats him every time. Uh, he doesn't want people to come to that understanding. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, and we'll wrap up with this. Paul says, and pray in the spirit on all, of, all occasions. You know, our charismatic friends here will say that means to speak in tongues. That is so far from what Paul is saying right there. Pray in the spirit on all occasions. So we have to move back into Ephesians, always in context. Has Paul prayed about the, has Paul even mentioned the spirit yet? Several times, several times in Ephesians. The spirit longed for unity among Jew and Gentile in Ephesians chapter four. The spirit longed for peace between Jew and Gentile in Ephesians four. So what he's telling this Ephesians church made up of Jew and Gentile is pray in the spirit on all occasions. Jew and Gentile, when you come together, come together in unity, come together in peace, because that's what the Holy Spirit longs for within this church in Ephesus. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's saints. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, which tells us right there that the gospel of grace is a message that is not widely accepted. And it's easy for a pastor to crave the acceptance of the church leaders, of the audience, of the ministry leaders, and because he craves their acceptance, he won't communicate the gospel. That's what was happening in Galatia. Remember in Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 12, Paul says, I don't seek to please men in the preaching of the gospel of grace. Because he says, if I sought to please men in the preaching of grace, if I sought to please men, then I wouldn't teach about grace because most, so many religious leaders so crave the acceptance of their peers that they will water down the gospel of grace because they so yearn for acceptance among their peers. Therefore, I'm going to water down the gospel. I'm, I'm going to add something to it so I will be accepted. So Paul is saying, and Paul's life was on the line too, for many of the Jews who were trying to hunt him down. He says, pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me. So he's asking that the Holy Spirit would give him the words to fearlessly and to clearly communicate the gospel of grace for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. It takes a lot of guts to communicate the gospel of grace because so many church leaders, ministry leaders, just in my experience, they reject that message. And it's a message they reject rooted in fear. And the fear is, I'm going to reject the gospel of grace because if the gospel of grace is communicated, people are going to go sin so far from the truth. That's a satanic lie coming through religious leaders to suppress the gospel of grace because Satan knows they won't sin more. Satan knows they will sin less and they'll experience greater joy and greater transformation. And the joy of the Lord is my strength. And the Holy Spirit takes the gospel of grace, produces joy in our hearts. There's our strength. Satan doesn't want people to come to that understanding. So that's why I think Paul, early in Ephesians, is praying. He wanted this body of believers to know, I'm praying for you, because they're reading this letter. Paul's praying for us. Paul's praying that we'll come to a deeper understanding of the gospel of grace, a deeper understanding of the revelation of what Christ has done for us 
on the cross. And later on, we're going to look. I can't wait till we get to Ephesians 3. He starts praying that I want you guys to know that the revelation of how much Jesus loves you. I mean, how much do we hear in the Christian world? Boy, you need to love Jesus more. Man, that's not Paul. Paul says, I want you to know. I'm praying that you will know more about how much Jesus loves you. That's the gospel. That is so, that's what changed my life. 